Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. My name is Dr. Harlan Betts, and this eighth season of Wisdom from Above is taking an in-depth look at the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Today's episode is titled, Three Mysteries. Our passage is the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation. During Churchill's final year as Prime Minister, he invited a very young Billy Graham to 10 Downing Street. Chomping on an unlit cigar, Winston Churchill looked at Billy Graham and said, I want to ask you a question. You know the troubled shape the world is in. Personally, I don't think the world has much longer to go. Can you give an old man any hope? Billy Graham realized that Churchill was not only asking hope for the troubled world, but also for his own troubled soul. Billy Graham showed the Prime Minister that the Bible not only offers hope to a troubled world in the triumph of Jesus Christ, but it also offers hope to individual human beings in the plan of salvation by faith in Christ. Savage, fierce times have come. And the question Churchill asked in 1955 is being asked by millions of people today. Do we have much longer before the end of the world? Is there any hope? Why doesn't God intervene? The answers to some of those questions can be found in Revelation. Some things are a mystery. In this Wisdom from Above podcast, we're going to see three mysteries in Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. First, the mystery of the mighty angel. Revelation 10, 1 to 4. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Notice this description of this mighty angel. He is heavenly in his origin. He's coming down out of heaven. He is another mighty angel. This would draw our attention back to the mighty angel mentioned in Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. But here he uses the term another of the same kind, that is, he is mighty, like the angel in Revelation 5.1, and he's doing the Father's bidding, like the angel in Revelation 5.1. Some say this angel is Jesus Christ, because Jesus, in the Old Testament, is called the angel of Jehovah. Others say this cannot be Jesus because he hasn't been referred to as the angel of Jehovah since the days God set Israel aside and began working through the church. 
But think about it a minute. This is taking place during the tribulation. The church has been raptured up to heaven. And Israel again is once again center stage in God's working. I believe this mighty angel is Jesus Christ, the angel of Jehovah. Seven clues are given. He is glorious in his appearance. He is clothed with the clouds, symbolic of divine being, like the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, like the fiery cloud over the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament. He is crowned with a rainbow, like the rainbow encircling the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4. He is radiant like the sun, like Jesus' appearance in Revelation chapter 1, where his countenance is shining like the sun. His feet and legs are like pillars of fire, like Jesus' appearance in Revelation chapter 1, where his feet are like fine brass refined in a fiery furnace. He has an open little scroll in his hand, possibly similar to, though smaller than the seven seal scroll. The seven seal scroll represented the title deed to earth, God's last will and testament, revealing the trumpet judgment on the earth, resulting in the return of Christ to earth. He is authoritative in his stance. Land often is a reference to Israel, the sea often a reference to the Gentiles, but in this case, it probably land just means land and sea means sea, and the ultimate rule and authority over land and sea belongs to Jesus. Imagine how encouraging this must be to John. It's also encouraging to us who live in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. It's a reminder that Jesus, the angel of Jehovah, is working out history's events according to God's perfect timetable. In verses 3 and 4, we see the declaration of this angel. He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which are which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. And this is actually even more evidence that the angel is Jesus. His voice is strong, authoritative like a lion when it roars. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's noted in the Old Testament, but it's also noted in Revelation chapter 5. And the sounds, the seven thunders uttered their voices. Almost all commentators identify the seven thunders with the voice of God. Job 37.5 pictures God thundering with his voice. Psalm 29 has seven references to the voice of God thundering. But the thing I want to highlight here is the ceiling. John is restrained from recording the message. We don't know what this mighty angel cried out. We don't know what God said. It is a mystery. 
In this case, God seals instead of reveals. This is the only place in Revelation where truth is sealed. But there is a principle back in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the things that are revealed belong to us and our children, but the things that are secret belong only to the Lord. There's some things he has not revealed to mankind. Now we come to the mystery of God in verses 5 to 7. Notice the position of the angel in verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. This mighty angel stands on the sea and the land, has authority in heaven and earth, and Jesus said he had all authority in heaven and earth. He is raising his right hand as though giving testimony in heaven's court. And notice the power of the angel in verse 6. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, created the earth and things that are in it, created the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. This mighty angel is swearing by the eternal one. Now some say this could not be Jesus because he's swearing by the maker of heaven and earth. And if this is Jesus, then he's swearing by himself. Actually, this angel could be the Christ, the angel of Jehovah. Hebrews 6.13 records an oath that God swore to Abraham. And in that oath, God swore by himself. Because there is no higher authority to swear by than by God. This mighty angel is also affirming that God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. This passage not only affirms creation as opposed to evolution, but it also declares that God will delay no longer. Notice the promise of the angel in verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So the mighty angel says that after the sounding of the seventh trumpet, there will be no more delay. This phrase could be translated this way. There will be no more time. No more chronos. This is the Greek word. Chronos means day after day time. Day after day after day after day. Chronos, chronological, where time just keeps going on and on and on as always. No, there will be no more chronos. From this point on, everything will be kairos, That means acute moments of time. You see, God is patient and long-suffering. People have had time to decide, time to decide, time to decide, time to decide, and then suddenly, boom, it's too late to decide, and they face their destiny. Let me help you visualize the difference in these two terms, chronos, which is day after day time, and kairos, which is acute moments of time, a critical point of time. Picture the trapeze artist. She is swinging, 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 swinging. This is chronos, 
day after day time. But then she releases her grip and is flying unstoppably through the air. And at that moment, Kronos changes to Kairos. And there's a split second of opportunity for her to be caught or to fall. You see, this is God's plan. There are signs of his return, increasing in frequency and increasing in intensity, sign after sign after sign, and even here in the tribulation, sealed judgments and trumpet judgments and bold judgments, and then suddenly, boom, Jesus comes. There'll be no more delay. There'll be no more time. We sometimes sing about when time shall be no more. It's Kronos, 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 but then boom, suddenly it's Kairos, a critical moment in time, and Christ comes. And what is man's response? Well, it could be faith, 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 faith as evidence of things not seen. Then suddenly, boom, Jesus comes and faith turns to sight and they're ushered into his kingdom. Or it could be unbelief, 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 and then suddenly, boom, Jesus comes, and they're doomed for eternity because they did not believe in Jesus. The mystery of God is about to be revealed. The return of Christ as King of Kings is about to take place. The hope of generations is about to be fulfilled. The coming of Christ, the end of sin and suffering, the righting of all wrongs. So the seventh trumpet introduces the seven bold judgments, which in turn lead to the accomplishment of the mystery of God. That is the mystery of Christ, the Messiah, returning to rule in righteousness. And these judgments that take place during the great tribulation will prepare Israel and the nations for Jesus' return to reign. Israel will be redeemed, and the promises of Abraham will be fully fulfilled. Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, will rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. The mystery ends, and the manifestation begins. And that will signal the answer to the prayer, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would it surprise you? If I told you that from the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden until this very moment, the Lord Jesus has never truly reigned on the earth? Oh, yes, I understand he is sovereign. Yes, I understand he rules over the universe. Yes, I understand he has authority, but he's not reigning on the earth. Satan is the unauthorized usurping ruler of the earth at this time. But you can rest assured that Jesus Christ is coming back. The Old Testament prophets predicted the Messiah would come to earth to rule and reign. Jesus himself predicted he would come back to rule and reign. The apostles expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. The early church expected him to return in their lifetime. Now it's been almost 2,000 years, and Jesus has not yet returned. 
We do not fully understand why his return has been delayed. But we do know, according to 2 Peter 3.9, that God is waiting for us to get the gospel out so more people can save. We know that Jesus is returning. But we do not know when Jesus will return. The timing of his coming is a mystery of God. Only God knows the day and the hour of Christ's return. When is he coming back? That question has been on the hearts and minds of believers for hundreds and hundreds of years. The mystery of God remains unsolved, but it's about to be answered. One day, I think very soon, the angel of Jehovah will say, no more delay. This brings us to the third mystery, the mystery of the little scroll in Revelation 10, verses 8 to 11. It reads like this. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and I will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Three challenges were given to John. Take. A voice from heaven command John to take the little scroll from the angel's hand. So the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, command John to take it and eat it. And he predicts it'll be sweet to his mouth and bitter to his stomach. So the second command is eat, take, and then eat. Eat the little scroll. You know, Jeremiah once said, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Jesus once said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Both Jeremiah and Jesus were talking about taking and eating the words of God, taking them into our lives and being chained by them. That's the idea. The idea that what we eat becomes a part of us and changes us. What we eat becomes part of us and impacts our lives. God wants us to be taking in his word. Far too many pursue physical food, but fail to pursue spiritual food. Far too many are settling for the reasoning of man rather than pursuing the revelation of God. The little scroll is a mystery. What is the little scroll? We don't know. What is its impact? Now, first, it will be sweet in the mouth. Then it will be bitter when set in the stomach. Clearly, it contained revelation from God, revelation that was sweet to the taste, but bitter when digested. How does this fit with the book of Revelation? Well, the revelation is sweet. The return of Christ, the reign of Christ, the righting of all wrongs through righteous judgment, the rejoicing of all God followers, the end of sin and suffering. But the revelation is also bitter. For believers, there is much persecution. For Jesus, there is much rejection. For unbelievers, there is eternal damnation. 
terribly bitter. Have you tasted the sweet reality of being loved by God? The sweet fellowship of being close to Christ? The blessed assurance of spending eternity with God? Have you really thought about the bitter results for those who reject Christ? For those who experience God's wrath? Who die in their sin? Who will be eternally separated from the presence and blessing of God? Doesn't it put a bitter knot in your stomach? And of course the third command was prophesy. Well, John had been ministered unto and now he must minister. John had heard God's word, now he was to share God's word. The angel of the Lord tells John, you must prophesy again about many people and nations and tongues and kings. You know, that same truth applies to all of us who know the Lord. We've been ministered to, and we should be ministering. We have, we have taken in the word of God. We should be sharing the word of God. We've learned truths from God's word. We should share those truths. You know, water flows into the Sea of Galilee, and then out of the Sea of Galilee. Then water flows into the Dead Sea and just stops there. We're not to be like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea takes in and takes in and takes in, but it never gives out. It just takes in and the water becomes stagnant and dies. We must be like the Sea of Galilee. It takes in and then it gives out. Takes in and then it gives out. The Sea of Galilee is fresh, alive, vital, life-giving. Far too many Christians are willing to just sit, soak, and sour. We need to feast on God's Word and then share truths with others. Well, we have uh, seen three mysteries today, but there is another mystery that is probably the greatest mystery of all, the mystery of God's love. The absolutely holy God of the universe loves flawed, sinful human beings. Do you want to hear something amazing? God loves me. You probably find that hard to believe. Well, you know what? So do I. (laughs) You want to hear something just as fantastic? God loves you. That's right. God loves you. The absolutely holy creator of this universe loves you you. Two responses are appropriate. The first response is to come to Christ. Come to Him in faith. Trust in Him alone for eternal life. No man can remain neutral. There are only two destinies, and they are polar opposites. You either believe in Jesus and experience the sweetness of forgiveness and life, or you refuse to believe in Jesus and experience the bitterness of guilt and death. Is your response sweet, faith, acceptance, saying yes to God, trusting in Jesus? Or is your response bitter, unbelief, rejection, saying no to God and his offer of eternal life in Jesus? Let me tell you again, God loves you. He wants you to place your faith in Jesus. He wants you to spend eternity with Him. Have you responded in faith? If you have, you know how sweet it is. 
You've tasted the sweetness of His forgiveness. You've tasted the sweetness of eternal life. You've tasted the sweetness of the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the sweetness of God's love. You're loved by God, and you belong to Him. How sweet it is. If you haven't yet come to Christ in faith, if you haven't yet trusted in Him alone for eternal life, I encourage you to do so right now, right where you are. So the first response is to come to Jesus, to trust in Him as your own personal Savior, believing that He died for your sins and rose from the dead. The second response is to follow after Jesus. You see, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, what is your next step? Well, all you have to do is sit around and twiddle your thumbs and live for yourself until Jesus comes back for you, right? Wrong. Man, never be. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, believing that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, you do have eternal life. And you know that that eternal life is a gift from God. And you know it was paid in full by the shed blood of Jesus. But don't miss this. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by doing good works, but we are saved to do good works. Having come to Christ in faith, we are encouraged to become followers of Christ. To put it another way, following spiritual birth, which is God's gift to you, there should be spiritual growth, which is your gift to God. As a believer in Jesus, we have some amazing privileges. We have the privilege of being a child of God the Father, privilege of being indwelled by God the Spirit, privilege of experiencing close fellowship with God the Son. We have the privilege of calling on God in prayer. But as a believer in Jesus, we also have some awesome responsibilities. We have a message to proclaim. We have good news to share. We have the opportunity to bring hope to the hurting, directions to the lost, truth to the confused, and life to the dying. Have you told your family about the love of God? Have you told your friends about the hope God offers? Have you told your classmates and coworkers how they can have eternal life? You've been ministered unto, now you need to minister. Share the good news. Tell others about God's love. Reach out to the unsaved, the unchurched, and the untaught. Reach out to the rich and the poor, the known and the unknown, the educated and the illiterate. Reach out to the hopeless and hurting. Reach out to the lost and lonely. Reach out to the discouraged and defeated. Let the light of Christ shine through you. To help sailors find a way safely to shore, a lighthouse is placed at the head of the harbor so that even in the midst of darkness or fog, a ship can see the light emanating from atop the tower and know clearly which way to sail for home. However, guiding a ship from a wide ocean into a narrow harbor, there are often unseen rocks and reefs that can be treacherous and if not navigated correctly, deadly. Therefore, the wise harbor master places a series of lower lights along the shore, sometimes to mark the surest path to safety. Maybe you know that Jesus is the light of the world, that lighthouse on the top of the rock. But you struggle with his challenge to you to be a lower light in the world. 
you may think you're too small or too insignificant or that you cannot really make a difference. I want to share a poem with you I learned when I was in high school. Let the lower lights be burning, but Lord, lower lights are so small. So if you can see the lower lights, the big ship's not at all. And as for sending my small gleam out across the wave, it reaches such a little way, surely no one it can save. But still I hear him calling. Trim your light, my child, and put it in the window, for in the darkness wild, eager eyes are watching, some in sin on tempest tossed. And if your light should fail them, in the darkness they'll be lost. Yes, Lord, I hear you calling. I've heard you o'er and o'er. I'll trim and set to burning my light upon the shore. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Wisdom from Above. Thank you for making these podcasts a part of your weekly routine. The good Lord willing, I'll have a new podcast out every week. Thank you for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. I look forward to meeting with you again next week as we continue our study of the book of Revelation. Until then, I wish you a great week and God's blessings. Thank you so much for joining me in this passionate quest for wisdom from above. <laughs>